Glad you're able to join us this morning as we look to worship the Lord. We're in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to begin with a question here. Luke's chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, turn there as I start. I want to ask the question, why do people do the things they do? You ever ask that question? You know, if you're a parent here, you ask that question every day about your kids, right? It's an important question to answer if we're going to live in this world as Christians. Why is my child so contrary? Why do your friends get upset in the middle of conversations? Why is your teenager so angry? Why is your friend swallowed up with despair and depression? Why would a man risk his entire family and his marriage for an hour of pleasure with a stranger? Why do we get angry in traffic? Why is the the married couple, married for 25 years, now fighting constantly? Why are you driven in your career at the expense of your family? Why is your boss so controlling and critical of what you do and say? Why do your coworkers speak so bluntly and harsh? Why is your child afraid of what others think of them? Why does your friend refuse to talk about anything of substance? Why do leaders fail to lead people? Why do people constantly feel the need to put others down and lift themselves up? Why do people do the things they do? Jesus answers this question, I believe, in Luke chapter 6. In verse 43, he says, For for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks." Here we see Jesus using ordinary things, ordinary physical things to explain extraordinary, unfamiliar truths. And he likens the way people function on earth to plants and and, and fruit bushes. He's saying, you and I are trees. But if we look at horticulture and if you go to Home Depot or your favorite nursery to buy an apple tree, you expect what kind of fruit to come from that tree. We're going to get real deep here this morning, okay? What kind of fruit comes from an apple tree? See, you guys are here with me. All right. There's an organic relationship between the roots of the tree to the fruit that it produces. And Jesus is teaching us this morning that's the same principle for us as people. Why do you do the things that you do? You need to answer that question this morning if you're going to learn anything from Jesus' words here this morning. So here's the main idea. So if you write down anything, write this down. It should be on the screen behind me. Our mouth is a spigot from which flows what is hidden away in the storehouse of our heart. Our mouth is a spigot from which flows what is hidden away in the storehouse of our heart. Jesus has already uh, launched into discussion about hypocrisy in verses 21 through 42. And we, we recognize we have a tremendous problem with hypocrisy. It's it's a, a hypocrite is one who wears a disguise to be someone else. A hypocrite is a word from, from the theater. It's a disconnect between what we present ourselves to be and what we want people to think that we are than what we truly are. And if we're honest, we all struggle with this. We all want to hide who we truly are in some way. 
In our passage here this morning, Jesus is going to uncover our issues. He's going to, he's going to point directly to where our problem resides, and I'll spoil it for you. He's going to say our problem is our hearts. How we talk is an outward sign of who we are. The storehouse of one's inner person becomes full of either good or evil as we live in this world. And Jesus will tell us that our hearts direct our behavior, direct our conversations, because what fills them will eventually make its way out in our speech and ultimately in our behavior. It says in verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. So first, we're going to look at good trees and bad trees. As we've seen in Luke's gospel already, in chapter 4, that when Jesus talked, people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Luke says that in chapter 4, verse 22. And the predominant thing people heard from Jesus was not responding to their questions with irritation or haughtiness or frustration or manipulation or hostility or bullying or threats or complaints or whining or bitterness. No, instead, they continually heard gracious words from the mouth of their Savior. His words announced that God had come to rescue them and not crush them. And not everyone received those words. But it would be clear throughout his ministry that when Jesus spoke, he was gracious. His words revealed something of his character. His words were a clear revelation of the fruit of his life. Jesus' words revealed he was different than anyone that they had ever seen or heard. And they continually said this in the beginning of Luke's gospel, right? They were amazed. That's what we're looking at here in the whole theme of Luke's gospel. Amazed. Amazed at Jesus. Wonder. And now Jesus talks to his disciples in this chapter, in this sermon, and it seems they paid careful attention to what he talked about of having patience when persecuted and loving your enemies, about not being judgmental towards others. But now he turns to them and he questions them to look within themselves to ask, why do you do the things you do? Why do you speak the way that you speak? And this is the test of Christian discipleship. The truest profession of our faith is the practice of our faith. It's not, not what we learned when we looked at the epistle of James. James 2, 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The truest profession of our faith is the practice of our faith. How we live, how we talk. And last week we looked at America's favorite verse, judge not and you will not be judged. And remember last week we talked about Jesus' words that it doesn't have anything to do with not judging ever, but rather he's condemning judgmentalism. Judgmental people are particularly blind to their own sins and they're experts in the sins of others. Judgmentalism is, is, is being a hypocrite, hypocritical, because people regularly do the same things that they judge other people for. And it seems that judgmentalism is the favorite pastime of hypocrites because they are experts at that same sin but refuse to deal with their own. Judgmentalism also seems merciless, which is significant based upon the passage here in Luke and what Jesus says. Love says we are to believe all things, but a judgmental person seems to disbelieve all things. They presume the worst of people. They read evil into the most innocent actions and words. They impugn motives and refuse to give the benefit of the doubt. Judgmentalism is the opposite of what Jesus teaches here, a loving, caring, and gracious disciple. 
And so there's reason to question your understanding of the gospel if your heart runs to judgmentalism. But Jesus isn't outlawing judging others. We're called to make moral judgments. And he would teach his disciples to love and to judge false teaching, false judges. He's teaching them discernment. But now Jesus redirects them from looking outward to now looking inward. And if we're to be faithful in our judgments of others and their actions as believers, we have to discern ourselves. We have to ask hard questions about who we are and why we do the things we do. Jesus wants his disciples to look at who they say they are, and he uses now a gardening example as a clear way to diagnose themselves. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Every person is a tree. You're all trees. Okay? We all produce different kinds of fruit. Jesus uses this ordinary thing to explain an unfamiliar truth. Good trees don't produce bad fruit, and bad trees don't produce good fruit. And then he gives another further illustration, just a picture in your mind. He says, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So if you go to the store and buy seeds for a raspberry bush, and they take root, what should you expect to grow? Another test. Let's see how you guys do. You guys are, you're excellent. You understand this. Raspberries. You would be confused if oranges came. And in that, he's saying there's an organic relationship between the roots of the plant and the fruit that it produces. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. If you want to see how much of Jesus' teaching has been misunderstood in our world and our culture today, just go ask your neighbor or your coworker if they believe that mankind is basically good or basically evil. I've asked that question, and time again, the response is, in it, is, is a response that people are basically good. There are some bad seeds in the world, but, but mostly we're good. I mean, some people do bad things, and there are some really bad people from their vantage point. You know, no one's perfect, right? But it boils down for more people that everyone is born, comes into this world, has some sort of goodness in them. People try to do good, so there must be some good somewhere inside of them. For them, sin is simply seen in our world as a matter of not knowing better not something that proceeds from the core of their being. Socrates taught this sort of thing. He, he was convinced that wickedness was simply a matter of ignorance. He spent his time going around Athens, provoking people to thoughtful discussions, trying to jumpstart their minds, convinced that if they dug more deeply, they could get greater knowledge, and with greater knowledge, the end of evil and wickedness would come. And essentially, he and others like him believe that sin is just a matter of making mistakes because we don't know any better. For him, it was, if you knew better, you wouldn't make those decisions. But is that what the Bible teaches? See, Jesus tells us a different story altogether from the world. Sin comes from the very center of our being. It comes from the heart. It's in our nature to sin. 
Here, I'll put it another way. We are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. I think R.C. Sproul said that years ago. Because of our fallen human nature, committing sin comes naturally. Not according to our original nature, but according to our fallen nature. So, fruit is a picture of the production in one's life. The fruit of a tree is an unfailing indication of the nature of the tree. What one does, what one is, and what one says are, are, are unified as are a tree and its fruit. Jesus is saying there's a connection between understanding trees and understanding ourselves. They both produce fruit and they both will communicate what's going on down deep below, underneath what cannot be seen. The fruit that comes out in your life, out of your mouth, comes from the roots, from the true condition of your soul. And the reason we say the things we say and do the things we do is that we are the people that we are. Now we're getting somewhere, right? We're cooking with gas, right? It seems so simple, but it's penetrating to consider. Jesus is saying there are good trees and bad trees. And he's teaching his disciples to discern themselves. I said this last week. I've said it a bunch. I'll just remind yourself again. This sermon will mean nothing if you're listening for someone else, okay? So don't. Try your best to listen for yourself. This is what Jesus is teaching these disciples to consider themselves. See, he isn't teaching a principle so they could be really good at looking at other people and neglect themselves. This is for self-examination. And we should be looking for fruit in our life. And the question that I have, and maybe you're having right now, is what type of fruit should we be looking for? Well, I think the Bible talks about that. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, we looked at these verses months ago now. Galatians 5, verse 22. Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These are the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. It's not like we can uh, say we're really good just at a few and the others not so much. We're going to ignore them and we just choose a couple to excel in. No, it's a package deal. Fruits of the Spirit, they're connected together. So bearing fruit means loving others more than we love ourselves. It means making sacrifices so that someone else can advance. It means having joy that is untouchable by this world and giving praise to God even when we continue to grieve over loss. It means being at peace about the things that tend to worry us and trusting the Lord with our anxieties about the future. It means we look to show kindness in the same way that God has shown us. It means we're, we're gentle when we want to be blunt and to show self-control when we want to lose it. 
This is the fruit of Christians. We're not perfect. And as you read through it, you recognize maybe many areas in which you want and you need to grow. But as Christians, we should be able to see seedlings of growth in each of these areas. When our hearts are good, God's goodness will always come out. It's the proof of our salvation. If there's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, then there's probably evidence of no Holy Spirit living deep inside you. A good heart produces good fruit, but a bad heart produces bad fruit. Bad fruit comes from bad hearts. And we should not assume that people are any better on the inside than they seem on the outside. Listen to J.C. Ryle, who wrote this 150 years ago. Let it be a settled principle, again, in our religion, that when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can, see, can know anything of the state of another's heart, and that although men are living wickedly, they have got good hearts at the bottom. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, or profane? And let us understand that this is the state of his heart. Does this mean that as Christians we will never say anything that is bad or do things that are evil? No, of course not. We struggle with the flesh, and our sanctification is not complete. The difference is that whenever we see the fruit of our old evil nature, we recognize it as evil and we repent of it. We turn from it. And as Christians, we are continuing to grow in our awareness of our sin and learning to repent, learning to turn away from our sin. Part of that then is evaluating where our treasure lies. So that's the next section here we see in Jesus' sermon. I mean, the question still remains, why do we say or why do we do what we do? And it's because we draw from our storehouse. That's the second point, the storehouse. Turn back to Luke chapter 6. Jesus says in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says that the good person out of their good treasure produces good. The Greek word for treasure is theosaros. My girls, I was teaching them some of that last night, so you have to ask them their Greek word later. Theosaros, treasure. It's also translated storehouse, storeroom. When we talk about a treasure or a storehouse, we almost always refer it to money, to wealth. It's a place for safekeeping. But here Jesus is relating it to what we believe and how we think. The word storehouse seems to make more sense to me than the word treasure. Our storehouse is where we keep all of the things we want to keep nice and to use that we live from. We have a storehouse, a storeroom that was built in our garage this summer by Jason Rasmus. And, it, it, it store, and in this room is stored our most prized possession. And you know what the most prized possession is these days. Chris Van Loo knows. It's toilet paper. <laughs> right? That's currency. We have bought so much that we're, we're willing to sell to pay for four weddings down the road. It's our storeroom. 
where our treasures lie. And how do you find out what's in our storeroom? You open the door. See, real deep stuff today. If our storeroom was ever to overfill, our stuff would come out of the door. The door is the entry into our storeroom. It's how we find out what's in there. Jesus is teaching us this morning that we each have a storeroom deep within us, and it's our heart. And he says that our mouths are the doorway to our hearts. Our external behaviors, the words we speak, our thoughts, even our attitudes, and even then our actions will inevitably manifest the motivations and the loves of our heart. The Bible talks a lot about the heart. And when we use that word, we mean the central part of your being, your control center, your steering wheel, what directs your life, your heart, your inner being. It encompasses all the other terms like soul, spirit, mind, emotions, will. Your heart, when, when, it, when you read that, is it's the real you. It's the essential core of who you are, your heart. Paul Tripp has spoken and, and written extensively about our hearts in relation to our words. And he uses an illustration here that I believe drives home the point very well. He, he says, have you ever said to someone, oh, I didn't mean to say that? Jesus says it would be more biblical to say, please forgive me for saying what I meant. Because if it hadn't been in your heart first, then it wouldn't have come out of your mouth. And man, that stings, right? Every time we open our mouth to speak or move our hearts to act, we're drawing from what we've stored in our heart, what we've treasured. You are and I, we are, we're expressing what's inside of us. You speak out of what you know and as you do and you contribute to what other people know about you. Your experience has shaped the content of what you say and how you handle yourself, which in turn gives other people an experience that shapes the content of what they say and how they live. So how we speak and how we live affects others. Your words are more important than you can possibly begin to imagine. Let's say you're a Christian. That means every time you speak or act, you're speaking or acting as God's representative on earth. Every time you engage others, you're hooked up to a megaphone that amplifies what you say and it goes to the cosmos giving the people around you an experience of how God himself would respond if he were here. So it's vitally important that we consider how we speak. Your unbelieving neighbor or coworker understands more about God when they hear you talk. Jesus is saying this morning that our mouth is a spigot of our heart. You know where the spigot is, right? It lets you get the water that's stored out. And our mouth lets out for all to hear what's been going on in our hearts. But for honest this morning, we don't want to believe that. That seems too harsh. It's hard to believe that my communication problems are not the result of the sinners around me. It's easier to blame them. 
We want to think that our kids or our spouse or our neighbors or our coworkers are the greatest problems that we face in our life. We want to believe that our greatest issues are outside of us instead of inside of us. You may say, I only responded harshly to that person because they've been rotten to me for the last few months. And Jesus says, you're lying. You don't speak that way simply because someone made you. No one made you do that. You chose to speak that way because of what's been filling your heart. And listen, friends, Jesus is teaching us that it's a very dangerous thing to believe, to convince yourself that your greatest problem is outside of you. That's one of the greatest lies that we can believe. Because when you're convinced of it, you stop looking for the transforming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To make it in this world, it seems easier to comfort ourselves that the reason we lashed out was because of how they're talking to us or how they treated us. And we tell our, ourselves that our, our problem is not us, it's, it's them. I mean, we know Proverbs 14 or 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. But I'm sure those, that, the author never had kids in their house. You know, for me, and I'll just, I'll be honest with you this morning, as a dad of young girls still, my heart is best revealed at bedtime. When I want to spend time with my wife, when I want to read or watch a TV program, and I have little feet finding their way downstairs again and again, and I become frustrated. And my words show my frustration. And the problem with my words is directly tied to my heart. My kids don't make my tongue lash out. My heart does. See, my heart wants a break from parenting. And my words of frustration are the fruit of what's been dwelling inside of my heart, in my storehouse. And what we learn in those moments is that what we speak and what we do is because of what's in our hearts. So, think back to the last time you lost it with a family member or another driver on the road. What was the motivation for your outburst? What were you dwelling on? What was consuming your heart? Was it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? You need to be honest. All right, just you and the Lord right now. You know, this sermon brings any fruit in your life this week. You need to be honest. Consider your words this week. Is there anyone here that would like to have their words played over the loudspeaker right now from this week? I wouldn't. Socrates also said, speak so that I may see you. You learn a lot of yourself from your words. Jesus says that from the storehouse of one's inner person comes either good or evil out of their mouth. You know, when Jason Rasmus came and worked in our garage, my neighbors knew something was going on. And, and so when it was done, we were proud of it, you know, and so we could keep things organized and shut and lock the door from little children. And my neighbors knew, and so they wanted to see, and all we had to do was just open the door, and they could see into the storeroom. They couldn't touch. They could see. The same for us. You see what's been lodged in your storeroom by what you say and what you do. 
and your family and your friends see also. You might be curious of your spiritual growth the last few weeks or months and wondering how you're doing, and Jesus says, take a look at your speech. How have your words been? What dominates your conversations? See, what we say is an outgrowth of who we are. Our speech reveals who we are and whether the Holy Spirit is present in our lives. In a man whose conversation is constantly full of evil things, great or small, they have an evil heart. For a man's talk is an overflow of his heart. David Gooding said that, saintliest man may be appalled by the occasional overspill whose sudden eruption escapes the filter of his moral judgment and reveals what pollutants still remain in the depths. But if the general tenor of a man's conversation is evil, the source must be evil too. No excuse can break the connection between a tree's fruit and the nature of a tree. So if our hearts are the source of our sin problems, then lasting change to our lives must always travel through the heart. It's not enough to try to just alter our behavior or to change our circumstances. Jesus came to transform people by radically changing their hearts. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an environment change, but it won't last when those changes disappear. This is the truth that Jesus teaches the Pharisees in Matthew 25, excuse me, Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And I was thinking about this verse this week because our dishwasher's on the fritz and I'm trying to help wash some dishes. But it's such a great discipleship opportunity for my kids, so I don't want to step in. <laughs> but as I was washing dishes, there was this metal water bottle. You know, like, I don't know, it's, it's got a narrow mouth. And it had something, it did not smell good. So I'm washing it and I can't get my man hands inside. So uh, and I look inside, and it's dark, and I can't see it, and it smells. And, and it hit me, like, this is a picture of our hearts. Like, I can try, even, but I need help. See, the Pharisees only looked at the external. That was a behavior they could manipulate. And Jesus says, guys, you don't get it. You pride yourselves in your right behavior when your hearts are a mess. Start with your hearts and behavior will follow. And eventually he gets then to the gospel what that is. But to apply then to us, you know, as parents, we sometimes believe the lie that changing the outward behavior will eventually change the inward in our kids. But after years and years of parents trying and their kids leaving the house, we find out that the kids did a good job of learning the behavior. But nothing changed on the inside. So when mom and dad are no longer around, their behavior changes again. And I say this with grace and love. Friends, they didn't walk away from God. They never knew him. I know that's hard to hear. I know there's parents here who have kids that are grown and they're not walking with the Lord and 
And, and maybe you think it's your fault. Friends, I need to tell you, you don't repent for your kids. You're responsible for you. Your kids just left the behavior. And if we, as parents, only look at the behavior and ignore the heart, there will never be lasting change. And as parents, we can threaten, we can manipulate, we can instill guilt, we can raise our voices to change behavior, but the change doesn't last because the body always goes where the heart leads. And life that is rooted in sin can only produce sin. And friends, perhaps you're here and you've convinced yourself that you're good. You feel like you can muscle your way through life trying to change your behavior and looking at others and trying to copy their behavior. You know, you're going to learn the Christianese, the, the way that Christians talk, and if you do that well, maybe you'll convince people when deep inside you know you've never turned to trust in Christ. You've not come to Christ in faith, personally trusting him for the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life through his death and resurrection. Friend, you need a new heart. You need a new life, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can do that. So turn from your sin, turn from trusting yourself, and turn and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And for my Christian friends who are realizing that your hearts have been misguided, you know that you sin and have sin issues, you recognize now that they're heart issues. And we need to come to Christ and ask for God to do a heart-changing work of grace in us, which he does through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It isn't enough to change the outward behavior. Real change takes place inside. So, as we end here, how do we apply this? Well, I ask, I have an, a number of questions. Maybe we'll send this out via email after the service in case you don't get them all. But how are you doing at relating to others, especially other Christians? You know, I know this is a weird time, and it's easy to separate ourselves as believers, and it's probably going to get worse. But is your natural posture to avoid other Christians? Why is that? I'm going to keep encouraging you, church, to reach out to one another. How are you doing with that? You know, we, we, we have no excuses in 2020 with all of the technology that we have to be in contact with one another, to be praying for one another? Are you taking time to build relationships with one another in this church family? Let me change gears for a moment. I asked the question at the outset, why do you do the things that you do? Have you answered that question yet? Perhaps you spend some time today or this week thinking through that question and spend some time again going back through the whole chapter Chapter 6, and reflecting on Jesus' words. This is, this is one sermon. But let me give you some further questions to consider about your speech and life. Do you know how to repent? Not just how to say sorry. That's not repenting. Now, acknowledging sin 
and turning from it. When was the last time you repented? Think about it. If you can't remember, then you have some work to do. Right after that, do you know how to forgive? When someone has repented of sin and they've come to you and asked for forgiveness, do you know how to forgive? I know that some of you struggle with this. And you don't want to forgive. You want to hold on to hurt and anger. But that animosity will fill your heart and it will spew out of your mouth. Ken Sand has some help for us regarding forgiveness. He's listed in one of his books, I think, The Peacemaker. He says, four promises we make when you forgive. Your relationships, friends, will grow if you apply this to your life. He says, first, I will not dwell on the incident. Second, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Third, I will not talk to others about the incident. Fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Understanding forgiveness and applying it to our relationships. There's many marriages that need to apply this. And you'd grow together if we look to apply it. Let me ask another question. Do you have your heart set on worshiping and obeying Jesus? Are our hearts disposed towards God or are our hearts set against him? Do we rejoice when God is honored? Do we enjoy the worship of God? Does your spirit thrill in the posture of adoration and reverence toward God? Or are we indifferent to the things of God? Do you strive to live a holy life? If we're to be growing Christians, we will show the fruit of a life that is born in God. And you will only grow in your life as you follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, I need that reminder. We all do. When we are disconnected from Jesus, we can do nothing. So let me encourage you. You need to stay in the word, friends. We need to keep following Christ. We need to keep showing love and care and patience and kindness to one another. And maybe God would continue to grow patience as us as we wait. As we wait for that day, we'll be reunited with him again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to gather and worship. And we long for the day when all that we'll do is worship you. And we ask for strength to complete this race and to do it in a way that brings you honor and glory. We know as we evaluate ourselves, God, there's struggles in our words. And we see as we look into our hearts, there's things that we have been hoping in that's outside of you. And may we learn to dwell in your word so that our heart's storeroom will be filled with you. 
May our church increasingly be a haven not for clones, but a refuge for repenting sinners who at times have little in common except for you, our King, who alone holds the power to unite us. Please continue to give us grace as we live this life. And may we honor and glorify you by the words that we speak and the way that we live. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.